This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. First of all, I would like to express many thanks to the organisers inviting me to this event. Um, thank you so much to all my friends who are joining to this event. And I hope you all have seen what the situation of Rohingya people just now have, you know, highlighted in PowerPoint. And what I want to focus here is why these are happening, why these people are fleeing from the country. This is the most important. Why people become refugees, Rohingya become refugees to this international arena, like 1.5 million Rohingyas are today refugees. Uh, our population is 3.5 million. 1.5 million have been left out because of continued persecution. Let me bring to you a bit history and who are the Rohingyas to know the situation much more. What is the problem there? And actually Rohingyas are living time immemorial in Arkan. They are original native people of Arkan state. And, you know, after we got independence 1948 to 1962, during democratic period time, Rohingya were recognized as an ethnic group. And on that time, Rohingya MPs were there. And my grandfather was a parliamentary secretary on that time. But I'm not a citizen of Burma. I'm a refugee in UK. Until today, I'm not belongs to any country. I'm as a refugee. And what situation, you know, uh, coming was is systematic persecution is coming up when General Lewin coped power in 1962 and strip up our ethnicity rights by stopping Rohingya language cultural program, uh, Union Day, you know, Every year, Union Day Rohingya participated in their, you know, uh, their, with cultural events, and Rohingya Student uh, Association was there in Rangoon University. And they strip up, and Rohingya language were broadcasted from Burma Radio Broadcasting Program three times a week. But those things were stopped, and a strip of ethnicity, and then they're moving up, you know, systematic persecution by, you know, forced labor and, uh, you know, extortion and extrajudicial crime, arbitrary arrest and 1978-79. On that time, 250,000 Rohingya become uh, left from the country and which is called Nagaming Operation. And what happened in 1982, they introduced another, uh, you know, discriminatory law, citizenship law. That law deprive basic fundamental rights of the Rohingya. Because of that law, I am not a citizen of Burma until today. So that law violates international customary law. Because of that law, today one million Rohingyas are stateless in their own homeland in Arkhan state. So denial of citizenship by introducing that law is you know, consequence, you know, to go to the university and they, you know, impose restriction on movement, restriction on marriage, restriction on education and, you know, confiscations of lands are carrying on after 1988. 
while I was in Arkana State, you know, we can move from one place to another. For example, if you want to go to Oxford to London, you need to get a pass. It takes two to three days. And you can get that pass by providing a big bribe. And if you don't have money, you can't go. And if someone is serious situation in hospital in London, if you need to go, you need to get a pass, but you can't go without providing a bribe. And so even your sister, your daughter, anyone is serious illness facing in London, you can't go. Until today, that is the situation we are facing. And for the education, for example, I couldn't go to the university, even though I passed my O level, which is matriculation in Arkansas State. You can't go higher education, university and college. More than 5,000 students since, you know, 1997 still pending, they couldn't go to the university. What happened to them? They faced extortion and forced labor by the military forces in, in Butidong, Maungdao, Sitwe, and they left from the country. And those students become refugees. They are taking shelter in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, UAE, and other countries. You can see how the future we are facing, how the blink and for the marriage if you want to get a pass if you want to get a if you want to get married somewhere you need to get a pass it takes two to three years you can get that marriage permission by providing a big bribe i still remember many of my friends told me they can't get a pass and they married secretly and they were arrested Five to seven years, they sent us to jail. You and a special reporter on Burma, Thomas Cantana, have mentioned on his report in 2010, many Rohingyas you can find in Butidong jail are, you know, because of uh, getting marriage with, without permission. And our lands were confiscated by the military, and they, under of military control, they kept it, and they brought, you know, non-Rohingya settlers to Rohingya villages, to, to the Rohingya lands. And Rohingya have to provide for them the food. Every day. That is what's in Rohingya villages that we have to prove. That is what I face. That is what I have seen in, during my stay. I was, until my age was 18, I was in Arkhan State. So what happened next? They have no choice. The, the situation become unbearable for the Rohingyas. And then they cross the border, they take risks of their lives, you know, took the, by boat they flee into Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Australia and others. And what happened today? We are facing today the last stage of extermination of the whole minority. That is what we can see. Because first they strip of the citizenship and then slowly moving on, they, you know, they drive out there by, uh, by, uh, you know, intro, by doing some operations, like Garmin King Dragon operations and others, they doing operations and they drive up the people from the land. And then they introduce 1982 citizenship law. 
and then people become stateless. You can't have those, you know, uh, you can't have any, uh, anything you permission, uh, you have to get all the power, any, uh, all the permissions to have, if you want to do anything. So that is the situation. And the people left from the country. Uh, what the last stage today, they want, they are burning our Rohingya's houses and they want to keep in a camps. Whether you want to keep in a camps or you want to get out from the country, there is two options. After 2010, anti-Rohingya campaign was started, as particularly Arkana State first and then other parts of Burma. Anti-Rohingya, anti-Muslim campaign. And government authorities, they, you know, supported, they instigated those campaign and seminars in Butidao, Mongdao, Sitwe, and many towns of the Arkana State. And after two years, what's happened in 2012, June, the pre-planned violence and a state-organized ethnic cleansing was started. And more than 150,000 today become IDPs. They are not getting aid properly and first they blocked the aid they faced and Rohingya, they cannot go, particularly Sitwe, where I was brought up. My friends were telling me with the tears, they can't, put a, they can't go to the Sitwe hospital at all. They can't go to the Sitwe market. They can't buy any food. They can't go to the clinic hospital at all. And you know that recently MSF, Nobel Laureate Organization, Doctors Without Borders, they were you know, restricted, and uh, there is the all close. Now there's children who are facing, you know, they are not getting health aid at all. And current census, what's going on is they are pushing Rohingyas not to write the Rohingya identity name. They are threatening all the Rohingyas. You can't write your identity name. If you write the Rohingya, you will face arrest, harassment or you will be arrested by the authorities. That is why every township last few days going around by the you know, police authorities are warning to the villages. So it's been already too long. We are facing this unbearable persecution, you know. International community is not still taking effective pressure. We call in for a long time, you know. Repeatedly, we call for international independent investigation, you know. What happened to Arkhan State since 2012, June and October? As still, there is nothing have done. So, it's effective pressure is needed. Particularly what Rohingya wants today, they are demanding. We are, we need on top of that is safety and security. Without safety, they can't sleep on, at their homes. Anytime, any, you know, uh, anytime they, uh, someone can burn their house, the government is instigated on that, the government is not taking action, allowing to happen this violence. And you can see everywhere of the 
part of the uh, uh, parliament and you know NAPIDO in authorities, every side they are talking anti-Rohingya issues. So we have no choice. The only solution is to save them is international intervention. For that, firstly, for the international intervention, international independent investigation is the only way to establish the true facts what happened to our Kana state since June 2012 and October, and that can bring those responsible to justice too, and that can stop further attacks. And 1982 citizenship law is that core cause of the problem for the long term, but it has been calling up by the international community, but not listening at all. So, but international community have to set such a timeline and benchmark to push the Burmese government. So, like this way, we we will become whole Rohingya become will be you know in future as a refugee. That is the only way we can see because. The government have already, you know, President Tengsif have mentioned in July 2012, the Rohingyas are not citizens of Burma. They are illegal immigrants. The only solution is keeping them in camps, sending them to the third countries. So that is the, his own policy is implementing. So we have no choice. Whether we have to live in camps or we have to get out of the country, the whole minority will be refugees. That's what our situation for the future. I believe you will raise your voice, you will try your best to save the Rohingya people before too late and I hope you will do something for our untold suffering Rohingya people of Arkan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kirsten. Uh, and thank you so much for all the hard work behind the scenes organizing this panel. And thanks all of you for making the time to be here. Uh, I'm going to be speaking a bit about the, the international uh, kind of aspect of the Rohingya issue. Uh, but what I will not be doing is going into any great detail in terms of our research findings. My organization has been working on the Rohingya issue for the last five or six years. And in June, we will be publishing five reports on uh, the human rights situation of the Rohingya in five key countries, being Burma, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Thailand, and Saudi Arabia. And I had some very ambitious plans of sharing some of those preliminary findings with you, but then I thought that that would not be the best way to spend uh, 20 minutes. Instead, what I want to do is hone in on what ERT refers to as the statelessness challenge and apply this to the Rohingya issue. And uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to come to the conclusion that the international community has woefully failed in terms of uh, living up to this challenge. So what we identify as a statelessness challenge is, is, is a dual one, uh, which is that under international human rights law, there is an obligation to protect everyone's right to a nationality. Whereas at the same time, concurrently, there's an obligation to ensure that the lack of a nationality does not result in further vulnerabilities and barriers in terms of access to other human rights. Uh, it's important to, to, 
to look at both of these issues collectively because statelessness often wrongfully is characterized as the right, or, or rather the right to nationality is characterized as the right to have rights. But under international human rights law, that's not the case. Your rights flow from the fact that you are a human being and they are not tied with your nationality or lack thereof. Uh, however, uh, and, and here are some of the, the, the basic rights that you would have access to and you should have access to under international human rights law. Uh, broadly speaking, there are the socio-economic rights uh, in terms of access to education, access to healthcare, social services, the kind of thing that you and I take for granted in our daily lives, but the kind of thing which is absolutely essential, which forms the building blocks of our development. Uh, but also you have access to civil and political rights, protection from arbitrary arrest, detention, etc. Now what I want to do is uh, share with you, with you four stories of four Rohingya people, uh, two of who I myself have interviewed and two others who uh, I've obtained their stories through a colleague of mine, a very dear friend, Saifullah Omi, who's a, a world-renowned photographer and activist. And actually, I will share those, their, their stories through showing photographs of them. And through these four stories, I will demonstrate how the international community has, by and large, failed to fulfill its obligations in order to meet the challenge that statelessness poses to us. I will then go on to look at the issue from a kind of a, a international perspective and highlight five problems which I think are the main stumbling blocks as to why the world has been unable or unwilling to address the Rohingya issue. This is the first picture. Uh, it's a very powerful one. It's, very, it's, it's, even, it's even more powerful when you uh, know the story behind it. Uh, the guy in the picture is, is Omi's assistant. He's a Rohingya. He's been in Bangladesh since 1992. And he's a very brave and courageous man who, through his efforts to, to encourage Rohingya to meet with Omi and, and share their stories with him and be interviewed by him, he has actually brought the Rohingya story out to the world. Uh, Human Rights Watch, the Equal Rights Trust, many organizations have had access to the Rohingya community in Bangladesh through, through Abul Kalam. Uh, what he's doing here is he's pointing into the horizon over the river Naf, which, which forms the border between uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar. And he's pointing into Myanmar. And Omi very casually asked him, how, how, how wide do you think the river is? What do you think is the distance from here to Myanmar? And at that point, Abu Karam uh, told Omi that to you it's just two or three miles, but to me it's two million miles because I'll never be able to go home. I'll never be able to visit my mother uh, or, or my family. And to Omi, this was the changing point in his life because the moment he had this conversation with, with Abu Kalam, the whole meaning of the word border or the word refugee uh, took on a completely different uh, uh, magnitude. And he decided that he needed to dedicate uh, the next few years of his life at least to the Rohingya issue. This next gentleman, I will, I will not divulge his name. Uh, I met him when I was in Cox's Bazaar in uh, 2011, and I think easily it is the most difficult interview I've conducted in my life. Uh, he was a Rohingya refugee who, 
who fled to Bangladesh in 1978, was repatriated, fled back to Bangladesh in 1991, 1992. Uh, he had a 14-year-old son who had a very rare quality amongst Rohingya. He was literate, and he was able to write letters on behalf of, of the Rohingya community. So whenever Rohingya individuals would, would have complaints against the camp management or have grievances that they wanted to address, they would go to this little boy, and he would write letters. And this was in the height of the, the forced repatriation back to Myanmar. Uh, there was a clash. Uh, the Bangladesh police came came in, they assaulted the boy, they tied him to uh, the buffer of their jeep and they dragged him on the road uh, two miles uh, with, with his father chasing behind the vehicle. Uh, they took him to the police station where he was beaten to death, whilst the father had no access. He was then taken to another location. Uh, again, the father was denied access and he was buried uh, without the father having access to to be able to at least go and witness the burial of his son. It was easy, to, I mean, I was absolutely shattered after conducting that interview. This third lady, uh, also an inhabitant of the Nayapara camp, uh, Omi uh, came across her when he was visiting uh, one of the small health centers uh, close to the camp in Cox's Bazaar. And uh, she, her daughter was under threat from her stepfather, who had, on many occasions, tried to rape, to rape the daughter, and this lady, on each occasion, had protected the daughter from her from her husband. Uh, on this final occasion, the husband took out his anger on his wife. Uh, as you can see, there are defensive stab wounds on her hand. Uh, she was stabbed multiple times uh, throughout her body, and she succumbed to injuries and died, both because of the the, the viciousness of the attack, but also because she did not get the health care that could have saved her if she was treated as, as someone with priority. This uh, final picture is uh, of a Rohingya man in Malaysia who was working in a chemical factory, and uh, as you can see, there was, a, uh, there was some kind of an industrial accident, and uh, he's arms in particular, but also other parts of his body were severely burnt. He is now unable to work, he has no access to health care, and he pretty much depends on, on the community for his day-to-day uh, -day survival. So I think those four pictures encapsulate the different challenges that the Rohingya face, and they demonstrate that the problem doesn't end when you leave Myanmar. Abu Kalam's prob uh, photograph shows that the problem very much is a problem that originates in Myanmar, but it's also a problem in host countries. It's all, also a problem with host authorities. Uh, it's a problem in the work workplace. It's a problem with access to healthcare. And it's also a problem in the community. Uh, Gender-based violence is, is very big amongst the Rohingya. Uh, and uh, as is often the case with the most vulnerable, uh, there, there's even greater hidden vulnerability amongst uh, women. Like I said, the root of this issue is very much in Myanmar, but there are multi-generational populations of Rohingya in Bangladesh, Malaysia, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, etc. And the, the argument that Equal Rights Trust is trying to make 
uh, is that this is a very difficult issue to resolve, both because of the nature of the issue, but also because states are unwilling or fearful to take that first step because they feel that if they do so, more Rohingya will come to them. Uh, which is why it's important that we push for some kind of shared responsibility towards addressing the Rohingya issue. And uh, I use the word shared responsibility of the international community very deliberately here, because often this is seen solely as a regional issue within the South and Southeast Asian regions. But very much it is a global issue. There's an international obligation to, to protect persons who are vulnerable. Uh, all countries that have dealings with Myanmar, economic or otherwise, all countries that are member states of the United Nations have an obligation in this regard. So now I'm going to come to the five issues of concern, which I think are issues which underpin the, the complexity and difficulty uh, of the problem. And I think if these issues can be addressed collectively, but also separately, then we may begin to uh, to make some headway in terms of addressing the Rohingya problem. The first issue, and, and maybe it's no surprise being the Equal Rights Trust that we see this as the first issue, is that of equality and non-discrimination. Statelessness is a creation of discrimination. The Rohingya were made stateless because they are an unwanted and excluded minority the, that the Burmese regime has over many decades been isolating and been trying to push out. On that point, I just want to comment on something that Tunkin said. He said something very powerful, which is that the Rohingya are on the brink of extermination. I'm paraphrasing that. But when, when people use that kind of language, particularly when that kind of language comes from Rohingya persons themselves, there is a tendency to dismiss them, to, to say that they are exaggerating, to say that it's in their interest to, 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 to bloat up the issue. Uh, but as a person who's worked on this for, for many years and as part of a community of people who have, uh, I think that if you look at the facts, that there are probably, there's a range of legitimate uh, positions you can have. And I think extermination definitely is one of those legitimate positions. And it would be, uh, I think, ignorant and, and absolutely disrespectful and ultimately harmful to dismiss such uh, uh, claims, particularly when they come from within the community themselves. Now, the discrimination hasn't ended with them being made stateless. It continues after they are stateless. And then their statelessness is used as the basis to justify further discrimination. So within Myanmar, you see that the fact that they are stateless, the fact that they are Bengali, uh, illegal immigrants, who uh, do not belong in Myanmar, has been used to justify why there are so many restrictions against them, uh, why to even justify the hatred against them. Similarly, outside Myanmar, where it may not be that dramatic, you still see that the lack of a legal status that the Rohingya have is used as, as the basis to justify all forms of discrimination against them. Uh, you see Rohingya refugees in detention, in immigration detention, when we all know that if you are stateless, uh, immigration detention rarely serves a valid purpose because they cannot be removed from the country legitimately. Similarly, you see they not having access to healthcare, not having access to education, despite the fact that they are in these countries to stay. And this brings me to the final point uh, in terms of non-discrimination, which is that there is a very strong nexus between 
the discrimination that the Rohingya face and the, the, the denial of other human rights. So why does a Rohingya not have access to education in Malaysia? Or why does a Rohingya woman who uh, has some kind of complications in childbirth not given access to the best treatment in Bangladesh? Uh, yes, this is a denial of the right to education. Yes, it is a denial of the right to adequate health care. But the basis is discrimination because they are seen as a group that does not deserve uh, the level of protection or, 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 or care as, as others who are not within that vulnerable group. The second issue, and this is very closely linked with the first, is that of protracted statelessness and the lack of a legal status. I already mentioned that the lack of a legal status is used to justify discriminatory attitudes and discriminatory practices towards the Rohingya. Uh, but it's more than that. Uh, with protracted statelessness comes increased uh, vulnerability. And also what it does is it shifts the, it shifts the, the blame is not a nice word, but it shifts the blame from Myanmar to other countries as well. So let me, let me explain. You, you would be able to understand Malaysia's position with regard to first generation Rohingya refugees. Uh, if they said, listen, this is a problem that's created in Myanmar, we will, we will tolerate them, but ultimately we want them to go back. You may not agree with that, but you, you, you would understand the rationale behind that. But what happens to the Rohingya child born in Malaysia? Is the statelessness of that child the product of Myanmar's discriminatory policy? Or is the statelessness of that child the product of Malaysia's discriminatory policy? And I think this is a very important uh, uh, distinction to make because it points to a wider collective culpability. I was in Malaysia in, in February uh, this year uh, for, some, so for some work on the Rohingya, and uh, I was interviewed by, 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 uh, on a TV panel show, and I, it really struck me that all the interviewer was interested in was what is happening in Burma, uh, about the atrocities, about the genocide, about horrible the Burmese are. At, at, at one point, I tried to direct the dialogue towards Malaysia and say, listen, we know that all of this is happening in Burma, but still, look at what Malaysia is doing, and can, cannot Malaysia do better? And I was just met with a stone wall. He was just not interested in talking about Malaysia. And I think that shows that there is a need, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of host countries as well, particularly in the context of protracted statelessness. The third issue is that of how the flight of the Rohingya, how their forced migration is characterized. And I think this is a problem both of attitude as well as framework. Uh, the problem with framework is that most of the countries that the Rohingya flee to do not have in place protective frameworks to address the problems of refugees, to address the problems of stateless persons, and, and deal with them as vulnerable people who deserve protection. And because this framework doesn't exist, what these countries do is they take the Rohingya and they lump them into the pre-existing framework. And that is very often a national security one. It is often a framework which criminalizes irregular migration and deals with irregular migrants as, as economic migrants who are clearly opportunistic and in the country for all the wrong reasons. Now, this 
kind of uh, outlook and characterization of the problem takes on added significance when you look at the migration paths of the Rohingya to these countries. Uh, a Rohingya fleeing persecution from Burma cannot just go to the Sitwe airport and get on a plane and fly out of the country. They have to depend on smugglers. Uh, what they don't know is that smugglers are often traffickers as well. And so they end up being smuggled out of the country. They sometimes end up being trafficked into situations of bonded labor. Uh, and then we see this discourse in countries like Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Thailand about whether these are victims of trafficking, meaning, yes, they deserve some kind of protection, or are they people who have smuggled themselves in, in which case they need to be dealt with uh, under a criminal law lens. Uh, this, is a, this is a discourse which is completely irrelevant because they are refugees. And if you are a refugee, it doesn't matter how you enter the country. But by not having that protective framework in place and by ignoring obligations under international refugee law, which, are, which many of which apply to countries whether or not they ratified the, the 1951 convention, uh, by doing this, these countries are able to get away with, uh, with uh, criminalizing the Rohingya, ensuring that they don't engage into, they don't enter the mainstream and often end up in detention or being trafficked further down the road. The fourth issue, and I, and I, and I touched on this very briefly earlier on, is the, the problem of the pull factor. And that is that there's this regional stalemate uh, uh, where countries, when you ask them, they very directly say, uh, we cannot do more for the Rohingya because if we do, then more Rohingya will come to our country, they will not go to other countries and we will have an, uh, there will be an un unreasonable burden on us. Uh, a few years ago, Bangladesh denied something like 35 million euros in aid from uh, the UN and EU to that was money that was going to go into the development of Cox's Bazaar, uh, not just for the Rohingya, but also for the, the local Bangladeshi community, which is extremely impoverished. Cox's Bazaar is one of the poorest districts in Bangladesh. And they refused this because of the pull factor. Now, I mean, that I think the pull factor argument is a very simplistic one. And one of the main uh, criticisms I have of it is that whenever people speak about the pull factor, they do not talk about the... Uh, the, the damage that is caused by not doing anything to change the status quo. So they speak of potential damage if things are changed, but what is the opportunity cost there? So what is the cost to the individual, to the community, to the state? I mean, here you are, you are, you have a population that's going to be there long term, that's growing day by day, and that's disenfranchised, has no access to basic rights, and has often no option but to enter the black labor market and be exploited by criminals. Do you, do you take that problem head on and try and uh, regularize that population and give them protection? Or do you, do you let the situation fester uh, until, it, until it blows up into a completely different problem? And also, what is, the, what is the cost of the international legal framework, which is something that all states uh, are obligated to, uh, to uphold? The fifth and final issue is that of economics and geopolitics, and this is often the, the big elephant in the room. And this is particularly where, where Western states, which are very good at uh, uh, saying uh, how things should be done in the global south, uh, take, take a step back. Uh, so the moment a human rights issue impacts on foreign policy, it's no longer a human rights issue. Uh, and this is something that I think 
all of us based here or meeting here in Oxford uh, have a particular responsibility to address. Uh, are we able to take up this issue with, with, with the UK, with the EU, with the US, with Australia? Are we able to to push them to recognize that ultimately their obligation to protect human rights, to, to protect the most vulnerable, must be taken into consideration along with their economic and geopolitical interests. I wouldn't even ask for you to trump them, though intuitively I feel that that's what has to happen, but at least for it to have a chance. It all boils down to political will. I mean, we know that there's a lack of political will in Burma, where the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi have made it clear that they will not touch the Rohingya issue because it's toxic. Uh, it's clear that there's no political will in Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Thailand as well. But there's also no political will uh, in the EU, in the UK, in the US. And I think this is something that we need to, to call these respective governments on. I think one way of doing that is by taking head-on this perceived uh, uh, dichotomy or, or, or tension between uh, national sovereignty on the one hand and international obligations on the other. You often hear states speak of their national sovereignty when the human rights book is thrown at them. I think there's, there's, a, there's a different way to approach this, and that is to, to, to get states to recognize that actually the ratification of treaties is an expression of national sovereignty. No one forces any state to ratify a treaty. By doing so, they are, they are, they are, they are taking on a responsibility to, to protect all persons within their territory, not only, not only citizens, all persons, and to, to maintain certain standards, because it is in their interest to do so. Uh, I think it's important to, to, to hone in uh, on that perceived tension and, and try and dissipate it. Uh, it's also important to push for states to ultimately take individual responsibility. Uh, what can Bangladesh do? What can the UK do? Uh, what can lowly Sri Lanka, my country, do? Uh, I mean, I think all, all, all countries that uh, have some kind of stake in this issue need to get their acts together. Uh, of course, from a practical level, I don't think it will happen unless there is some level of shared responsibility. Uh, which is why I think it's important to acknowledge that and to acknowledge that regionally and internationally uh, something needs to be unlocked and someone needs to perhaps make that first movement in order for others to feel confident enough to follow. And maybe there, the, strategically, it's about identifying uh, who is most likely to be that one person, that one state, that one ally that we can push to use their leadership and their positioning and take on more responsibility on that issue. I don't have the answer. These are, these are all questions that I'm throwing out. Uh, I will stop there because I probably ran over time. Uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions after Zani. Thank you. And thank you for um, inviting me uh, to this conference. I just arrived from Malaysia yesterday morning. Um, what I want to do is um, essentially uh, present uh, the research findings that, uh, from a research project, a three-year-long project that uh, my wife and I uh, jointly conducted. Uh, my wife wrote 
with and under uh, among an uh, equal rights trust. Um, but I am Burmese myself. I'm sitting next to uh, my uh, Rohingya compatriot. Uh, he is a refugee, and I am a citizen. We came from the same country, we speak the same language. And that's our homeland, our shared homeland. Well, he's a different creature, and I'm a different creature. And we are products of uh, the state, and state-induced uh, popular discourses about who am I as a Burmese, who, uh, who he is as a stateless, you know, identityless, not just stateless, identityless person. And the price he pays for being who he is, you know, in whose families he was born into. I did not choose to be born as a Buddhist, you know, much less uh, a Burmese. And he didn't choose to be a Rohingya. He was born there. He didn't you know, have any choice. And yet, uh, the structures over there, the policies, produced two entirely different creatures with different levels of protection and vulnerability. Um, of course, he is part of the persecuted uh, group, the ethnic community. I am part of the dominant Buddhist Burmese group. But because I take up the issue of Ranger, and I write about it, I speak about it, I don't mince words about it, um, I also <laughs> am unable to go. And I think about uh, almost two, actually about two years ago, um, President Peng Tseng came to Brunei where I was teaching. And I saw him face to face, he refused to say hello. And, uh, and I was also like, uh, informed that I would not be welcome. Uh, at a time when the world thinks that Burma is opening up and embracing exiles and expatriates to come home and to help build the country. They said, I need to write a personal appeal to the President and also sign a declaration saying that I will not say or do anything about the Burmese politics. So I said, you know, I'm prepared to do neither. So my, <laughs> I have a mother who's crippled or who's left crippled after a severe stroke several years ago. She's 75. And so whenever I talk to her, she cries. And so I, I haven't spoken to her for about five or six months. It's quite painful. Um, anyway, like, now I get to the subject of uh, my presentation. Um, this. The, the issue of Rohingya persecution and my attempt to understand the role of the Burmese state, uh, especially the military leadership and state organs, is actually a natural extension of my basically almost at 25 years research, um, which attempted to understand why a, a single national organization, the armed forces, of less than half a million people, 500,000 soldiers, have been able to control a population of 50 million for 50 years. And I'm not kidding myself. I don't, I don't think anyone in this room is kidding themselves in terms of the nature of the regime in Burma. Essentially, in the way it operates and its mindset, you know, we have exactly the same military regime that we had before the elections in 2010, before our censorship was released and allowed to sit in the parliament. And so, 
I lived in Burma for 25 years, almost 25 years. I lived abroad, you know, 17 years in the U.S., and then six years here, and then a few more years in Southeast Asia. And in my entire life as a Burmese in the country, I never heard anyone say the word Rohingya. We know Mujahid, the word you know, Mujahideen, Muslim secessionist along the Arab coastline. Never heard of the word Rohingya. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not from a rural community. I'm from Mandalay, the second largest city, from an educated family. So I consider myself a, you know, an educated person. But even me, you know, who's above average person in, in the Burmese context, never heard the word Rohingya. It's not that the Rohingya did not or do not exist or had never existed, but that it shows the, the, the extreme effectiveness of the state propaganda. And someone in, in, you know, as privileged as me had never heard of Rohingya. You consider like you just, I mean, like think of like what 75% of the country's population who are farmers in rural communities. You know, would think of Rohingya. So the state is able to create the narrative that Rohingyas are invaded viruses that need to be repelled or fought back at any cost. And the Rohingya area is constructed as a western gate, you know, uh, and the Rakhine's locals construct themselves the image or the narrative of defenders of the national boundaries, national sovereignty, national security. So now, the, the, uh, in terms of the Rohingyas, I think we need to know who the Rohingyas are uh, and, and also why they're persecuted. Have they always been persecuted? You know, is, is the issue or the violence between the Rohingyas and the uh, local Rakhines, is this simply communal? Or are there other, you know, other players behind the scenes or officially? And so this research was conducted over a period of three years in about five or six different countries. Um, you know, the methodology includes you know, textual analysis and that, you know, primarily Burmese language documents, official, unofficial, you know, like uh, monitoring the uh, uh, popular Burmese uh, media developments, Facebook. Also, it also includes uh, interviews formal interviews, unstructured interviews, conversations with people and individuals ranging from freshly, fresh arrivals, boat people in, in uh, either Thailand or uh, actually more in uh, Malaysia. From the, from the lowest, you know, uh, say victimized refugees fleeing the country to some of the highest um, military leaders. Because I, I was talking to um, my friend who's um, taking care of a four years old that's why she's going to be here. She, she's my uh, uh, colleague at water. She, she she warned me, you know, like, uh, don't, don't talk too much about yourself because uh, she, my wife is uh, English, and so she's quite uh, you know, self-effacing. And I lived in the US for a long time. So I, I have no issues talking about myself. She said, you know, well, you're talking to an English audience, and you know, I said, no, 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 I, I will talk about myself because it, it relates to, directly to my work. Um, 
But I will talk about it in a non-egotistical way. And the reason I, I mentioned this is like you know, the, the topic of the, com, uh, the presentation is reading the state. Okay? So who am I? You know, feeling confident to say that you know, my reading is more accurate than others. So, so in that sense, of what is the lens that I put on? What are the experiences I bring to reading the state? I'll tell you, I work with three different state, uh, heads of military intelligence over a, a span of five years. At a time when the world would not touch the Burmese military leaders with a long pole. At a time when no one would dare criticize Aung San Suu Kyi and get away with it. And I committed two major sins in Burmese politics. I say Aung San Suu Kyi's policies are failing, policies of isolation and sanctions failing. <laughs> Occasionally I get personal, I say she's also a failing, uh, a failing leader. Um, and secondly, the, the Western approach to Burma isn't working. So therefore we need to work with um, those in power if we want to influence them. So the, you know, the, about five, uh, say like eight years ago, they, they, were, ex they were actually anti-Christ They were extremely controversial. But you know, I also like <laughs> pay a huge price in terms of my reputation, say like that. Um, but one thing I gained from working with the uh, three heads of intelligence uh, is I learned how they operate. I learned how they rationalize things, justify things. You know, I, I learned how to look at the world and issues from their perspective. And I've never allowed myself to be influenced by their worldview or you know, their rationalization. So that allows me and that enables me to read the state in relation to Rohingya persecution. Um, so now um, let me move on to um, what the state has been doing. Because this is important. I think when we talk about the Rohingya issue, the most important issue is to, to ask the question, who bears the ultimate responsibility? What is the chain of command? You know, where, where does the buck stop? And uh, to me, like uh, based on three years of research, and my own understanding of the way the, the Burmese state and authorities at the highest level operate, I would say the responsibility, the responsibility of Rohingya's suffering lies squarely with the Burmese leadership at the very highest level. This is, you know, if, if the Rakhine Buddhists were killing the Rohingyas or burning down um, the Rohingya communities or looting or raping Rohingya women with impunity, it's because the state has sanctioned it, if not officially or subtly outsourced the violence and killings and other forms of atrocities against the Rohingya. So, um, the, just to, to, uh, to give you an example of the state behavior towards the, uh, the Rohingya, let me just uh, run through very quickly a short list of um, behavior. Mass killing, torture, attempts to prevent birth systematically, extraction of forced labor, Severe restrictions on physical movement. The Rohingyas in two districts of the Arakan or Rakhine state live in 11 security grids. And some of the people, or some of the individuals who were in charge of these grids, are, you know, where 
either my friends or friends of uh, my parents. So, you know, the, um, there is a, a, a personal dimension to it because, like the perpetrators, some of them are, are, are new or close to the family. So, you know, <laughs> that puts also um, a, a degree of responsibility on me as, a, as an individual. And then large-scale internal displacement of an estimated uh, 150,000 people. Sexual violence, or different types of sexual violence. Arbitrary arrest, summary execution, <coughs> land, land grab, community destruction and destruction of social foundation. And also, you know, the uh, uh, jailing of uh, community leaders or those who are thought to have potential to lead and mobilize public opinion within the Rohingya uh, community. I mean, that is actually a long, long list of you know, various types of targeted persecution on, on the basis of Rohingya ethnicity and you know, uh, religion as well. So if you, if you look at, just to give you a, a very vivid image of the kind of social conditions under which they live. Just take one example, doctor-patient ratio. The national average of doctor-patients is one doctor is to about you know, 500 to 700 uh, Burmese of different ethnic groups. The local Rakhine ratio you know, may be a little bit lower. Just guess. I mean, just have a wild guess what the doctor-patient ratio between, you know, uh, in, in for the Rohingya. One doctor is to 76,000 to 83,000 Rohingya. And the state has a policy of not allowing any Rohingyas to study medicine. Yeah? Medicine is considered um, basically to go on to tertiary level education. And Rohingyas are prohibited from training as midwives. I mean, just stick with this one point, doctor, patient, and forget the killing, forget the arsons, forget by forced labor, rape, whatnot. Just stick with the, uh, the issue of like, you know, basic knowledge and the, uh, the basic services for any community for survival. You, you, you create a situation where 80,000 Rohingyas have access to only one doctor and you do not allow them to study, you know, to acquire the knowledge of self-preservation, you know, literally medicine. And, and, and so that's why like, you know, I, I get really furious when, you know, uh, lawyers attempt to split legal hair and say, prove the intent. You do not have a Hitler-like figure. I mean, that comes from a very senior uh, Western diplomat, you know, uh, acquaintances of mine in Rangoon, who were exchanging emails. I've known him uh, since he was a young program officer in Washington. So I was a young activist. And we said, he said, you know, no, 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 you cannot use the, uh, the, the language like extermination. There are no guest uh, chambers. You know. There are no auctions. There are no trains like the taking Rohingyas. I was like, well, you can kill 
the entire community or a significant number of uh, the population by design, by policy. And you know, like the recently expulsion of MSF Holland from Burma, you said. And in reaction to the international outrage against the fact that um, the Burmese government kicked the MSF out of Arakan, the, uh, the Burmese said, "Okay, all right, yeah, we're, we're going to um, allow you to operate in everywhere within the country except Arakan State." And like you know, more than one million people in the in Arakan say both Rakhine and Arakan, um, primarily actually uh, uh, not Rakhine, uh, Rohingyas, rely on MFSF services because for all intent and purposes, the the Burmese public health uh, system has collapsed over the past 50 years. So the intent. The intent is to be read from the act. You're not going to find documentation. You're not going to find reformist president coming to, to Chatham House or going to the UN and say, we have a policy of extermination. You are never, ever going to hear this um, uh, from a mouth of an official. And so the, the crucial thing here is, what we're talking about, what is the state's intent? You have to read it from the acts. What is the state doing? To what impact? You know, to what consequences? And from which you can you know, read backward. This is the, the intent. Um, and then... The official state um, disclosure. How is the state spinning? How is the state defending? Or how is the state framing the issue? That is also very important. Yeah? Because uh, I'm going to talk about what the international community is doing or prepared to do or not doing or unprepared to do. That has a lot to do with how the issue is framed or characterized. And if the Burmese military government or quasi-civilian government comes out and say, this is an intercommunal sectarian conflict between the Rakhine Buddhists and Arakanese or um, sorry, uh, Rohingya Muslims. Then, of course, I think it's going to, you know, present itself as a referee. You know, we are trying to put out this religious uh, hatred or inter-ethnic hatred between the two communities. So, in that construction, the very perpetrators. Was presents itself to the international community as a neutral referee. You see? That's why I think it's, it's important to, to really understand that this is, there is a communal dimension, I will not deny this. There is a religious and ethnic, um, you know, pre, uh, a, a set of prejudices, uh, and there is competition for resources and territory and land, yeah? because Arakan is the third most poorest um, uh, states, in, a state in, in, in the 14 uh, states and provinces of Rome. But, having said that, uh, that, still, the violence, the terror, the persecution of the Rohingya were initiated by no other than the state in Burma in 1977-78. Think about it. 
if you relate the Rohingya persecution to the persecution of other ethnic minorities, the Chins, the Koran, you know, other Christian minorities, uh, and, and as well as Buddhist but, you know, uh, minorities such as Shans, right, the prim primarily Buddhist uh, people, the, the Rohingyas are borderland people. Like all borderland people, their presence predates the creation of post-colonial nation-states. And so just like the Chin, Karen, Chin, Mon, Shan, Karen, Wak, the Rohingyas could be, uh, uh, the Rohingyas are found on both sides of Burmese border. But they, and also the Rohingya, the persecution of Rohingya was not always uh, there. When the, uh, the here's the, the rational, that we talk about, the persecution of Rohingya by the state. But no, no one's really asking, why? Why are they persecuting? Why is the state per singling out this group? What are the benefits, strategic or economic, you know, by persecuting the most vulnerable, unarmed group of people? Well, here's, um, here's my understanding. When the Arakanese or Rakhine nationalists took up arms against the Burmese state, central government, the Arakan was, uh, was actually annexed into the, uh, you know, the kingdom of uh, Burma uh, back in 1785. The, the Arakan are among the most nationalistic uh, <coughs> group of ethnic, uh, ethnic people in our country. They took up arm right after, um, right before the um, Burmese independence. It, it wasn't the Karens who started the uh, rebellion against the Burmese state. It was the Arakanese, followed by the communists and then by the, uh, the Karens, because of the, you know, um, I suppose like the colonizing nature of the central state. So when the Arakanese armed movement was gaining momentum, the Burmese state found it in its interest to play the local Muslim Rohingya against the uh, Buddhist Rakhar. It's very simple. The, the Rohingyas have consistently made up about one-third of the Arakanese total population. The other two-thirds were Arakanese and uh, the rest, but the Arakanese were the dominant group. So from the only time when the Arakanese Buddhists or Rakhine Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims had major communal conflict was in 1942 when there was a major power vacuum and transition. The Japanese were coming in yeah, uh, to, to fight the, the British. The British were like you know, abandoning the country, moving back into India. And the Rakhine Buddhists sided with the fascist Japanese. The Arakanese, sorry, the Rohingya Muslims were uh, working with the British. So as soon as like, you know, the, the, the shift in the equation took place, the Arakanese and the, uh, uh, and the Rohingyas were at each other's throat. That was in 1942. And, and for the next 70 years, there was no intercommunal violence until 2012. That was when the, the events of June and October of 2012, in my view, is the result of Burmese state outsourcing violence against the Rohingyas to the local Rakhines, who were at the time demanding 
greater share of resources, greater con administrative control over Arakan State. Yeah? Arakan is the third poorest state in Burma, but it is actually one of the most strategic and resource-rich uh, region. And it is so crucial to China, because China wants to build and have access to the you know, 1,300 miles long coastal line, because that coastline will be China's launching pad for its navy. Like, you need to have uh, 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 you need to have a, a navy that goes that accesses to um, to um, to oceans, India and Pacific. The Chinese are desperate to have free access to that coastal line, and also the, the pipeline, the politics of pipeline. The two major pipelines go starting from the Arakan State, going to uh, to China, gas and oil pipeline. I won't I won't go into detail. I'll, I'll stop. Um, in just like 30 seconds. And so, the, um, and, and finally, the ideological shift. If you look at the, the nature of the Burmese state, it was multi-ethnic, multi-religious, upon independence. Some of the first, very first ambassadors representing Burma were like Eurasians, you know, uh, Christians, Muslims, and the, the character of the post-colonial Burmese state was multi-ethnic, multi-religious. And over the past 65, 70 years, the Burmese state has you know, stridently moved towards one voice, one nation, one religion. You know, that kind of like, uh, ideological movement. And out of that uh, uh, came this um, popular anti Muslim racism, and finally, racism has always been there uh, because of the, uh, the you know the, uh, the colonial nature of the uh, 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 race relations in the country, rooted in the uh, in the colonial political economy, but being prejudicial against people who are different from you, I mean fr from one, doesn't necessarily lead to people committing genocidal acts. And there has to be an organization. There has to be a mobilization of a popular prejudice so that people would take extreme violent actions against a particular community. So, so to wrap it up, I think that the most crucial element is, despite the fact that there is a communal and sectarian dimension to the Rohingya suffering and, and uh, uh, violence against them, the primary responsibility, it can be verifiably proven, rests with the Burmese state. And so that's why we call our study the slow burning genocide of Myanmar's Rohingya. And uh, this, I mean, our study will be uh, published in uh, University of Washington's Pacific Rim Law and Policy uh, Journal. And uh, the, you know, the lawyers and the legal professionals law professor pour over 30,000 word document and we were forced to make like about five major revisions over the past like, essentially three months. It's coming out next month. And so I'm going to stop here. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.